Hello, everyone, and welcome to the False Nines. This is the 56th episode of a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Pensack, alongside my friend, Beachside Seaside, Adam Goffin, as they call him. Adam, how's it going today in sunny Southern California? Footy, Zach. Today is the day to buy your TVs. Footy. <laughs> Such an American consumerist. Happy Cyber Monday to everybody listening to the pod around the world. I hope that you did not overindulge on material goods that you do not need to make you happy. That is my philosophical statement for today, Adam. Honestly, whatever makes you happy in the year 2020, you should do more of that. that that's fair. That's a very fair counterpoint. So yeah, buy buy everything you need if that's what gives you happiness during this <laughs> uh, during this tumultuous time that we live through. Uh, but uh, a hot off the press weekend for the Premier League. It was match day ten for most clubs. Obviously, the uh, the schedules have gotten thrown a little bit out of whack with COVID and European football and so on and so forth. But uh, big. Big weekend for for Newcastle, of course, starting off the weekend on Friday um, with a a big away win. I can't remember the last time that we won away in London. It's been a bit of time. Um, So, yeah, we're going to go through, of course, the Newcastle match in depth. We'll then run through uh, a few other matches throughout the weekend in equal as much detail. Skim over a few of the ones that, you know, don't need to be talked about maybe as much, and then dig into some off-pitch matters as well as Armchair Pundits, 10 and 90, and the regular sing-song. So, Adam, anything you want to toss in before we get going? Any any new updates in your life or any big grandiose statements you want to make to set the precedent for this episode? None whatsoever. Just hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving with their families, doing it in a safe and socially distant way, and got their fill of turkey and pumpkin pie. Mmm. Turkey and pumpkin pie from the shores of Wales to the middle America. That is a staple of everybody's uh, late, late November Thursdays. So I'm glad that uh, you you made that statement and hope everyone had a, a safe and lovely weekend as well. So going right into Friday, um, as we mentioned, Newcastle starting off the weekend Friday afternoon here in Denver and out in California where Adam is currently located. Um, And what a shocking result it was for Newcastle playing away at Palace. We were without Alan St. Maximin, and maybe that's a good place to start. St. Maximin ruled out of this match pretty much at the last minute, uh, claiming the reports claiming there was a thigh injury, but there were also reports coming out that there might've been some sort of, whether you say dust up disagreement, some sort of spat between St. Maximin and uh, perhaps even Steve Bruce. What did you make of that, Adam? It was an interesting one because St. Maximin's form hasn't been the best recently either. When I first was reading these stories, my thought was that him and Bruce got into it because Bruce was maybe telling him that he was going to rest him, quote unquote, for this upcoming game. But as it turns out, well, we don't even know if it's true. There was an injury that happened and that was the reason that he was uh, not in the team. But just a strange one all around, really. You feel like he, he of all people would be starting for Newcastle every game, assuming he was fit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there is that interesting element of, as you said, that the form has not been what we had hoped it would be. A lot of people, myself included, attributing that largely to Alan St. Maximin being played out of his natural position on the left wing. Bruce oftentimes in recent matches stationing him in the, the center of midfield as a 10, at times even deeper. Um, and we, we do seem to have this uh, a bit of a dilemma here where Bruce wants to play he wants to play St. Maximin in the, in the middle, but he also wants to play Miggy in the middle. He also seemingly wants to play Joe Linton somewhere in the middle. And uh, yeah, perhaps it was just a day of tinkering with the squad, but uh, a bit of a shocking omission looking on the team sheet for this one. Yeah, let's just play everybody in the middle, Zach. We'll have a 1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1 formation and just like have no players down the sides, right? Just let them drift a little bit. Good, mm-hmm. good first, first tactics right there. I mean, I would argue that Newcastle hasn't had a strong wide formation since the 2012 season when we when we finished in fifth. Uh, but, you know, that's that's just one man's expert opinions uh, going on to the match. It, it was a bit of what we expected. Right. It was uh, a match that was very back and forth. It seemed as though neither Crystal Palace nor Newcastle really wanted to be the first one to make that mistake, I think, largely because. Both of the two sides have had their goal-scoring issues so far this season. Um, and going into halftime, it, it really did seem like anybody's game, right? Uh, Joe Linton and Callum Wilson were were linking up quite well. It was Joe Linton playing just off the striker as kind of that, you know, that second striker. And uh, going into halftime, you, you kind of had the feeling it really was up for grabs at that point. Yeah, I had the feeling that one goal was going to decide it. It did the previous season. Van Aanholt score, scored the winner there in London. And I got the feeling that that was going to be the same thing again. There wasn't a ton of chances, real clear-cut chances being created. And when they were, they were falling to Joe Linton, who was, you know, for, for all his efforts and the better link-up play that we were seeing, didn't look like he was going to put one away. It's true. I mean, a, a lot of balls falling on his non-favored left boot. He he did have uh, one or two shots that there were somewhat pacey, but right down the the throat of uh, Gaeta, the keeper. Um, but it took until the 88th minute, and what a goal it was, uh, that being said, to, to open it. Um, that link-up play on full display, it was three consecutive passes between Joe Linton, Callum Wilson, back to Joe Linton, and then finally back to Callum Wilson, uh, who slotted it past the keeper uh, to score that goal. And, and that really was what we were looking for as Newcastle fans to, to kind of see the way in which Joe Linton possibly can be maximized uh, in, in this role, playing slightly off the shoulder and, and maybe a little bit less in the spotlight as the, the leading man for Newcastle. So I thought that that was, in my opinion, one of the best goals that we've scored all season. It was a great footballing goal, and nothing caps off a great move better than nutmegging the keeper. That's one of my favorite things to see. He put it straight through Guaita's legs, um, and that's just that's how cheeky Wilson is, right? He's not scared to finish. Took a touch with his right, finished with his left. Just the the thing I said that right right there when that goal went in is it's so nice to have such a realistic threat like Callum Wilson. Like there are certain players when they go one on one, you're like. Ah, oh, he's gonna mess this up. Like Alan St. Maximin, a lot of times when he goes one on one, I get that feeling that like, oh, he's gonna fluff it. He's gonna fluff his lines here. Same with Miggy, Callum Wilson. You just have faith that nine times out of ten, he's gonna put the ball past the goalkeeper when he's one on one like that. And you know, quality finish as always. There's definitely that level of confidence that you can see him exuding. He's a consummate professional. He's been playing in the top division for quite a while, and they're 
at this point, there aren't really any nerves that Callum Wilson has. And you, you can tell that on, on such a clean finish, such as the one on, on Friday. And not to be outdone, Joe Linton just a minute later on a counterattack played down the wing by Callum Wilson. He made a number of good moves, Joe Linton, after receiving the ball, kind of done in his defender and put it back on his left, and then got a really, really fortunate deflection. Uh, the shot perhaps would have been saved and then trickled past Gaeta with the help of that deflection. But 2-0 win, nonetheless, both Joe Linton and Callum Wilson ending with a goal and an assist. And that's the type of striker partnership that we have been missing for years and years at Newcastle. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, to be able to to see Joe Linton play like that after so much criticism, I think, made every Toon fan really, really happy. You know, we've been asking where that return on that $40 million investment has been for a long time we paid half of that for callum wilson who looks a much more potent threat than than joe linton but you know may, maybe this is the start of something new we've we've only seen three premier league goals from him period since he signed for the club this being the third is this the moment do you think zach that he's turned the corner that they finally found the right blend up front i think that one game is obviously too too small of a sample size and it, it does depend on if uh, Steve Bruce is willing to continue experimenting with that formation. Um, but I, I think that this is, as you said, the best we've seen Joe Linton probably since he came to Newcastle, even discounting a, a few cup matches where he got some scrap goals. But uh, this was really, you know, really on display his movement. He had a lot of good passing. The, the pass for uh, Callum Wilson's goal was fantastic. That kind of reverse cutting ball right at the feet of the English striker. So I think, yeah, if we need to adjust our formation to kind of the traditional four-four-two to, you know, to have both of those strikers playing in their most comfortable position, that might be what Newcastle needs right now to inspire a little bit more energy out of the club. I agree. I think we've we've talked a good amount here about the offensive side of Newcastle's game. What we haven't talked about yet is the clean sheet, right? And I think there are many uh, reasons why this happened. I know that you made some notes here about Darlow and wanting to talk about him. But before we get to Darlow, I wanted to say how good I thought we looked defensively. And a large part of this for me, and I've been saying it for a while, Kieran Clark, I feel like, on his day is our best defender. Um, and him coming back into the side and partnering with, um, with Federico Fernandez made us just look a lot more solid. Now, granted, we played against Palace. Palace had Wilfred Zaha out, and they weren't the most strong team from an attacking standpoint. But Fernandez got back, made some really important blocks. Clark is just really good in the air, keeps the defense really well marshaled and organized. Um, I just, I just thought we looked way more solid at the back than we have in some weeks. I think that's a great chat. I think that for me, Fernandez is the more important of the two defenders. I think that, like you said, Kieran Clark is a great defender on his day. That being said, we, we've seen that that day can come at times few and far between. So uh, Newcastle has a really good situation at center back, though. We have uh, on that team sheet, there were three healthy center backs with Fabian Cher on the on the bench. And, and when Jamal Lascelles comes back, you'd have to expect he'll automatically get that place back in the starting 11. So it does become a question of, you know, who is the best pairing for a specific day. And I'll keep harping on it. That comes down to a manager understanding, you know, what matchups are going to take place and who needs to be on the pitch. So it was very inspiring to see, you know, that pairing, which is a pairing that we haven't seen in quite too often, uh, you know, work out well for Newcastle in this one. 
Yeah, and on top of that, we have another defender who's out on loan right now. And I saw a little snippet on this the other the other day. Um, a couple games ago, Alavesh played against um, against Barcelona, and actually a lot of the credit for keeping Messi in his pocket went to our boy Florian Lejeune. And then the following game, he teamed up with Hasselu for a goal as they beat um, Real Madrid 2-1 at the Bernabeu as well. So just incredible to see how our on-loan defender is doing and how successful he is being in Spain. I hope that he stays healthy and I hope that he comes back and we have even bigger competition next season for places. Yeah, absolutely. That would be, I mean, best case scenario is we have five center backs and uh, can sell maybe one or two of them in the summer for a, a fairly significant profit, because you're right. All of those guys are getting cycled in and out of their respective teams right now and all kind of keeping those respective teams afloat. Now to close out Newcastle, I think Darlow does deserve a bit of credit as well. It wasn't the more, the most difficult game of his season so far. I'd say that the game against Tottenham was certainly really his, in my opinion, his kind of coming out party, but uh, just another confident match by Carl Darlow. He, you know, kept kept the team organized, kept the team really disciplined at the back, and it continues to beg the question: What's going to happen once Martin Dubravka returns? Because Darlow has pretty much not taken a step wrong uh, in his time as the starting keeper, and it'll be very, very interesting to see what occurs when when Dubravka goes back. If he's going to be back in full health, or if they're going to try to ease him in and keep Darlow between the sticks for that time. Yeah, it's going to be interesting for sure. I, I think right now the answer is that you can't drop it. Like, how, how could you drop him at this point? I think we've said this before. I think Steve Bruce waits for that opportunity, i.e. when Darlow makes a mistake, and then he brings Dubrovka back in at that time. Um, that, that That's my personal opinion. I don't think he gets dropped, but I think he eventually will. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's probably a fairly good prediction. He'll, he'll wait for that kind of blip, blip in form and then use that as the... I wouldn't just say excuse, but the rationale for for bringing back in the number one. Now, Newcastle with that win up to 13th in the table, not the most inspiring position, but it is tight in the middle uh, of the table as it almost always is at this part in the season. Newcastle on 14 points, 14 points, only three points back of West Ham in fifth. So really does show you kind of, you know, what one victory can give a team and Newcastle uh, going up against Villa this Friday, hoping to, to get another three points. Villa has only one win in their last five matches. So seemingly a little ripe for the taking right now, but um, for, from Newcastle on Friday, Adam, why don't we skip over to Saturday? Uh, we'll, we'll start with the, the morning fixture. There is one more thing to say. Go ahead. I had one more thing to wrap it up on Newcastle. For a fleeting moment there on Friday, we were actually in 10th, which means that I lost my 10 and 90 bet with you that Newcastle would not break the top 10 between when you asked me that question a month ago and the end of the season. So it was wow. fleeting. It was less than 24 hours, but Newcastle did momentarily break the top 10. I wanted to make sure I pointed that out. Thank you. The honesty is is so endearing. Uh, although I have no recollection of making that that bet or agreement, so um, you're yeah, you're, it, was, you're, it was more about ten and ninety prediction. I would say. Sorry. I see. I see. Okay. So so from there we'll go over to Saturday. It, it was the day starting out with um, a match that I think few expected to see as much controversy and drama as we did see. Liverpool being held to a 1-1 draw by Brighton. Uh, Adam, why don't you have a quick overview of uh, all the, you know, there seemingly were five or six different moments of uh, talking points that occurred in this one. 
Yeah, so just a quick synopsis of the game. Uh, as we as you mentioned, it ended in a 1-1 draw, but the game started with a 20th-minute penalty that was missed by Neil Mopé. Um, that penalty was then followed by a goal by um, by a goal by Mo Salah, which was correctly brought back. And then from there, Jota finally took the lead for Liverpool in the second half. As we went on further in the game, we saw a second goal, which would have been a clinching goal for Liverpool, also ruled out by um, VAR for offside on Sadio Mane. Very marginal in terms of that decision. And then at the end of the game, in injury time, another contentious VAR call awarded a penalty to Brighton, and they promptly went down and and scored that goal to basically walk off the field with a point. Um, let's just say that Jurgen Klopp was not happy with uh, with that uh, in his post match interview with a with one of the reporters. He was very sour in the way that he responded to questions. Uh, didn't really want to answer any questions about VAR because he said that he, they would be twisted and it would turn into a headline the following day. And I think most notably blamed. James Milner's muscle injury on the fact that the Premier League decided that 12.30 on Saturday was the right time to have Liverpool play from a TV schedule standpoint right after they played in the Champions League on Wednesday. Um, I'd love your thoughts on, on Klopp. Has he got some valid points there? Is it a case of sour grapes? How do you, how do you see this one, Zach? I think it certainly goes both ways. I think the, the way in which he delivered a lot of those points seemed a little bit kind of uh, uh, a little bit um, I don't know self self sympathizing let's say that being said I, I think there there are a lot of good points a I think I agree with him that anything he says about VAR will be twisted by the British media we see that happen time and time again and I think that pretty much universally at this point um, everybody believes that VAR has done virtually minimal, if not zero good for the league, for the game of football, for the flow and the excitement. I saw that Andy Robertson had a great quote uh, after the match, just saying that the, the fun is being sucked out of a football match when you can never celebrate a goal. You can never really be sure what's going on. And I, I think that that is a really valid point. I also think that Klopp has a really good point saying that, you know, playing his team on what is essentially two days rest um, and having them on the early fixture on Saturday, it, it's it's just asking for trouble injury-wise. And we, we saw that with one of the elder statesmen at Liverpool. Uh, I agree with him. I, I think that there's no way Liverpool should have been in that time slot. Um, and the, the Premier League is doing itself no favors if they're taking one of their marquee uh, one of their marquee teams who you know has one of the largest international fandoms of any club in the league and putting them at this time and in this situation where issues like this can occur. So again, I think the presentation of the points might have been a bit whiny at times, but I, I can't find myself disagreeing with much of the content of Jurgen Klopp's tirade after that match. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, I think that he was a little bit hurt by how the game had played out. Um, one of the points he made was how he didn't have the luxury to make additional substitutions and bring off players and put them at greater risk of muscle injuries because the five-sub rule has been rescinded by the Premier League in this new season. I think that's a very valid point, right? especially when you're trying to cram a season into five less weeks than normal. What harm would it have honestly done to give them the five subs? We tried it. Everybody thought that it was, you know, a great, a great way to do it. The little water breaks that they had 
um, during the summer were also something that were considered and eventually didn't end up panning out. But I think the five sub rule is, you know, to me is a no brainer. They're doing it in the championship. They're doing it in the championship, Zach. That's a, that's allowed in the EFL championship. So why, why not in the Premier League? So I'll play devil's advocate there. I think that the reason that a lot of the lower teams in the Premier League have issues with the five sub rule, and I think this is extremely justified, is it does very largely benefit the top clubs that have this increased depth. Clubs like Liverpool that can bring on Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, can bring on Milner on games that he's not starting, can even bring on Roberto Firmino at times now that he is not guaranteed a starting role. And those are players that would start on almost every single club, let's say eighth, tenth and below in the Premier League, where you have clubs such as Newcastle, such as Brighton, such as Crystal Palace that are not benefited necessarily by having additional subs because they don't have the quality off the bench. So what you do create is you create this ability for the larger clubs, let's say, it is a perfect example. Liverpool in this game, they're you know hard pressed to get a a second goal against Brighton. They can bring on this extra firepower, and Brighton has essentially nothing to respond with. I do agree that rules need to be changed in regards to injuries with players and the substitutions that are associated with those. And we'll go into that a bit more in the recap of the Wolves Arsenal game. But I don't necessarily think that having five subs benefits every team in the Premier League. I just think you're you're running the risk of getting more injuries as a result of the crammed fixture list, including traveling, you know, for these European teams as well, for Liverpool's and the Spurs and the Chelsea's and all those teams that I'd love to be like playing in Europe every every week and have that problem. Uh, it, it's just tough. Like they might have those big squads, but they have a lot more commitments from a games game standpoint as well. Yeah, I suppose maybe for this season it would have made sense. I think I, I suppose I was more thinking about it from a permanent basis. And I, I don't think that that's a rule that should be implemented in what would be a normal Premier League season. That being I said, I agree with that. I, Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying. So Liverpool held to, to a 1 1 draw against Brighton. Uh, from there, we went to the Man City Burnley match. And this match was quite quite a uh, a distance away from the somewhat boring Liverpool game that we saw earlier that morning. A breeze for Manchester City. Riyad Mahrez having a hat trick in a 5-0 victory. Two goals within 20 minutes, and I would say two very simple goals. I, I don't think I've ever seen Burnley's defense look as bad as it did on Saturday, Adam. They were all over the place. There seemed to be zero marking. Of course, Manchester City is a tough team to play against, but Really, you, you gotta be you gotta be pretty fearful if you're Burnley if you're if you're giving up goals that easily. Yeah, that was gonna be one of my questions to you. Do you think this was a case of Manchester City looking really good, or Burnley looking really bad, or both? I think both. I mean, the, both of those Mares goals were simple turns, simple defensive mistakes, and just a lack of closing down against a player who is, you know, forming this Arhen Robin esque career of always cutting back on his left foot and you can you seemingly can never stop him at this point uh it, it was it was bad from the start for Burnley it was 3-0 at half after Benjamin Mendy finished what was actually quite a nice volley um and from there the, the game was the game was done and dusted uh Manchester City uh, had a goal disallowed Kevin De Bruyne um had a, a series of assists and hit the woodwork a number of times himself but 
Uh, Burnley now sitting just right above the bottom of the table. They're in 19th. I, I know we talk about this every time, ask if Sean Dyche is really untouchable, but I mean, 17 goals allowed in nine matches, even for Burnley, that is, that's a glaringly bad statistic. Yep, it doesn't it doesn't make for good reading for Dyche or for Burnley fans, I think, right now. They they look like a team in trouble. Yeah. Well, Manchester City again walking along on that one. They are now up to eleventh. So they might crack the top half this year, Adam. What a finish that would be for the citizens coming coming yes. off their second place finish last season. Deceptive table. They have a game in hand. If they win that, they're in fourth place. Let's not panic too much. But to your point, you know, they they are a team that is underperforming based on expectations and what we thought they would be doing this year. Manchester City have been weaker than we assumed that they would be. They've lost mm-hmm. the teams around them. They lost to Spurs the previous weekend. They've lost to Leicester. So, like, those are teams that they can't afford to be dropping points against, right? Let alone these Burnley games. They have to be winning those, but they need to be beating the, the rivals around them, and they haven't done that so far this season. Absolutely. I think one big issue with City that we've pointed out before is the lack of goal scoring threat. Obviously, this game aside, Leeds United and Manchester City have scored the same amount of goals this season. Uh, so that that's definitely something that you wouldn't want to see if you're uh, a team that puts as much money into their attack as City does. I will say Fernand Torres looks like a bright, bright spot on that City team. I thought that besides Mares, he was the one who really stuck out to me. Uh, I would certainly keep my eye on him as as maybe the next um the next great kind of spanish import for city i don't know if you saw spain decimate germany in the uh, mm-hmm. nations league recently but ferran torres was actually a big part of that he played he had a, yeah, really he had, good he had a hat trick he had a hat mm-hmm. trick in that game yeah and in general assists as well he just he just had a great game all around looks like a player so City back to winning ways after that loss against Spurs. From there, there were two more matches on Saturday, a bit less uh, entertainment, let's say, in those. Uh, Leeds getting a, a much-needed victory after going three games without one. Uh, dominating possession, actually, uh, 59% to 41% in their win against Everton. They also had 23 shots to Everton's 15. So Everton and Leeds kind of going in in slightly different directions. Everton has only won one in their last five after their barnstorming start. Um, what do you think it is with Everton right now? Do you think they're just regressing to the mean, or are there are there minor things that, that need to be tweaked by Carlo Angelotti to get them back into the hunt for a top four, top five finish? This was the first game where I was genuinely concerned about Everton this season. Um, four losses in five now. They had Richarlison, James, and Calvert-Lewin all starting in this game. So no weakened team like when we beat Everton. You know, they had two of those three players out. I'm genuinely feeling like this is a regression to the mean. I think that Everton are sliding back down towards winning the Everton Cup again for a 100th successive season. (laughs) I mean, we'll see what happens. This would be, I think, the most damning of those instances with how much they've spent on not only a world-class manager, but also world-class talent in in James Rodriguez. Uh, You have the leading scorer in the Premier League outright with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. As you said, it it was just this lifeless performance. Um, Bielsa Ball was on full display. They just absolutely he did to put it frankly he outmanaged Ancelotti in this one and and really just suffocated Everton so we'll we'll see if Everton is able to find form I I do think that they are you know they are a team that 
should be ahead of Southampton, should be ahead of West Ham, I think should be competing for a top six, top seven spot, especially this year when so many teams are decimated by injury and slow starts, but a, a very, very poor performance for the Toffees. Yeah, I, and on the lead side of things, I love tuning in to watch Leeds. I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to get week to week with this team. You, you know it's going to be entertaining one way or another, right? We started the season saying this team was very kind of Keegan-esque in, in terms of how they played. You know, you, they're either going to win 4-3 or lose 4-3 in terms of the, the offensive style that they have and the lack of defense. Um, but now we, we see them lose three games ago, 4-1 to Palace at Palace, who are not really known as a really strong offensive team. And then they go and they draw nil-nil against Arsenal. And then they go and they beat Everton 1-0. And I'm like, how do you predict what is going to happen with this team? They've gone from being one of the worst defensive teams to having successive like clean sheets against two of the better teams in the Premier League. And and here we are. Marcelo Bielsa grinding out one-nil victories in wait, no, that's not classic part Bielsa style, is it? It's it's very <laughs> anti-Bielsa. But lots of chances created to your point, lots of shots. Yeah, it is the perfect team to watch from a neutral's perspective, right? Because as you said, you have absolutely zero idea what you're going to see uh, week after week. But a big, big win for Leeds to get back in the in the kind of a better positive development for their form. And the the final match Saturday, you know, really the marquee matchup it was. Adam was Sheffield United. Uh, against West Brom, the the, ba- the battle of the bastards in this one, the bottom dwellers. And Sheffield United, now the only team in the Premier League without a win after being defeated 1-0 this weekend by West Brom. West Brom inching up to 18th now, just outside or just inside of the, the relegation zone, whereas Sheffield United, it's one point from 10 matches. That is yeah. historically bad. They are on pace to be the worst team to have ever played in the Premier League, uh, beating the Derby County record from about 13 years ago. I mean, everything's going wrong for Sheffield United. There, there seemingly is zero attacking prowess. Ollie Watkins has, um, uh, or excuse me, Ollie McBurney not putting the goals on the board for them and the defense, uh, 16 goals allowed in 10 matches. Whew, I mean, Chris Wilder is on a increasingly warmy and warming seat right now, Adam. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think just to sum up the Chris Wilder piece there, their next three games are against Leicester, Southampton, and Man U. Um, he, yeah, he could be gone by Christmas. Mm-hmm. So um, on the West Brom side of things, I think what I've noticed with them recently is that they've gone from playing a lot more openly where with a three draw, 3-3 draw against Chelsea and being more of a goal-scoring threat just playing a little bit more compact. They seem to be a little bit better defensively in weeks. Um, and that, to me, that's the only way that this team survives. Like if they go for the jugular and they try and be that offensive team they tried to start the season as, they're going to get creamed by teams that have more talent than them. So keeping it tight, trying to eke out wins like this, I think is the way that they, they succeed. Sheffield United were definitely good for a point, if not more, in this game. But credit to uh, Slavin Bilic and West Brom. They, they ground this one out and got their first win of the season. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. When you're a newly promoted side, you unless you have that Leeds-Bielsa mentality, you pretty much are resigned to, to playing this more defensive style. And 
uh, we'll see if West Brom is able to, to keep it up and, and eke out of the relegation zone. Well, well, we'll take a quick commercial break here, Adam. And then when we come back, we'll go over the Sunday fixtures, the fixtures from today, and then uh, dive into a couple of the talking points regarding Newcastle United that has to do with issues off the pitch. So be right back. Right, so we are back from our commercial break. Now, the Sunday fixtures um, were a number of large talking points coming from there. I, I'd say we, we can start it off here with the Manchester United-Southampton game. Really what was you know the first of two marquee matchups on Sunday with Southampton's extremely impressive form to begin the season. Uh, and that form they continued in the first half against Manchester United, getting two goals before half. The first coming uh, from an assist uh, by James Ward-Prowse, who was really ultimately the the man of the moment for Southampton, both in this match and in this season uh, entirely, especially with Danny Ings going out with that injury. Uh, Ward-Prowse whipping in a corner in the 23rd minute for uh, Bednarek getting ahead on that one for the opener, and then uh, Ward-Prowse scoring himself just nine minutes later off a free kick. I mean, that man cannot be stopped in any dead ball situation right now. I don't want to give away a corner against Southampton. I don't want to give away a free kick against Southampton. He is terrifying when he steps up to a dead ball. Well, first off, you pronounced Jesus Ward-Prowse incorrectly uh, because he has the flair international <laughs> free kick taker. Uh, Alexander uh, Pirlo as well back in the day. Beautiful, beautiful free kicks. James Ward-Prowse right now, I would say, is probably the most improved player in the Premier League this season. Um, fantastic. I mean, maybe you could make the argument that Calvert-Lewin is, but Calvert-Lewin had a good season last season. I think Ward-Prowse is on leaps and bounds. Um, so great, great first half from Southampton, but this was the classic tale of two halves, Zachary, was it not? It absolutely was. And after the half, Southampton, you know, looking to hold on to a, a much needed and, and very impressive victory. But on came Edinson Cavani, this summer purchased by Man United, dubbed by many to be, you know, a, a desperation signing, an excess to needs signing. And Cavani showing how good and how consistent and how much of just a veteran striker he is, uh, assisting. First to Bruno Fernandes to get Manchester United back in the game uh, in the 60th minute. And then he himself, Cavani, scoring a brace, headers in the 73rd and then the 90th minute. Um, both of his headers, just, just extremely intelligent movement. That's what I noticed there. Neither one, you know, a thumper, but more just knowing where he needs to be to get in front of the ball, flick it on, divert that uh, route that the ball was taken and Manchester United against what seemed like all odds here, getting a victory. Um, and it begs the question, you know, is Cavani for real? Can he have a, a big impact on the fortunes of this side this season? I think watching it, it made me think back to when um, Ibrahimovic came in for Manchester United for that one season, right? He's a player that's not going to play every game. He's more than likely going to come off the bench and be an impact sub given his age and given you know, the fitness of the and the youth of the players around him that they're wanting to bring on. That's the mindset of Manchester United right now is trying to bring those younger players on. But I think he can certainly make a difference for them. Why shouldn't he get 10 to 15 goals this season? And I think that will help, right? Especially as one Mason Greenwood has gone completely off the ball recently. 
Absolutely. And you also see the leadership here. You know, even if Mason Greenwood is not scoring the goals, I didn't think Cavani could serve a very vital purpose and kind of mentoring Greenwood. Both Greenwood, I would say Rashford at times as well, although Rashford is significantly a more accomplished player than than Greenwood. But I think Cavani does, you know, provide this level of expertise on maybe the the less tangible things, the movement, the occupying spaces, the way in which he on that first the goal, the assist to Bruno Fernandez drifted onto the wing when he was playing at the number nine and, and crossed that ball in. So I think Cavani could play a really huge part in not just the fortunes of Man United, but the development of those strikers as we go along the season. Yeah, it makes you wonder. I was thinking about the Greenwood situation. I don't know that he started very strong this season, but certainly since the issue happened on international duty when they were out in Iceland and he obviously broke the team protocol and brought a girl back to the hotel. Um, dropped from the squad, maybe that's shaken him more than than he's really let let on, you know? And that part of that has really kind of sapped his confidence after getting dropped by the international team. Mm, that's an interesting theory. I, I see a lot of grounds behind that, especially with how big of a spotlight is on him after his breakout performances last season. You know, it's, it's that kind of can't-stumble mentality, and when you do stumble, it, it can very easily get to your psyche. One other thing I wanted to mention in this match, Adam, that, that is important to keep an eye on was on that James Ward-Prowse, excuse me, Jesus Ward-Prowse free kick in the first half. Um, David De Gea diving for that ball, it seeming seeming like he injured his knee on a contact, stayed in the match until halftime, but then subbed out for Dean Henderson, who made his league debut for Manchester United. Now, reports today seeming that the injury to De Gea is fairly minor. They're, they're actually claiming that there's a chance he could play in their upcoming fixture uh, this week, but um, definitely a scare for, for Manchester United, despite, you know, we, we've talked about the quality that Henderson brings, but De Gea has been off to a, a fairly good start this season. I, I think that there has been a bit of an uptick in form from what he showed last season um, and important to Man United to, to not, you know, have those injuries, especially with international play coming up the table in the fixture list, getting a lot more crammed while we go into the holidays. Yeah. Good, good point. I thought Henderson came on and obviously didn't concede any goals in the second half. Um, so a good, good showing for him. I feel like Ollie handled this one poorly in reading his comments about hoping that De Gea would be back for the game on Wednesday against um, Paris Saint-Germain, I didn't like the way that he worded that, right? You've got a, a keeper that's finally gotten a chance in, in Henderson and a keeper, De Gea, who's really started every game. Why would you need to say that? What, what is the necessity to really say that we hope that De Gea is back for Wednesday's game? Talk about the injury. Talk about the fact that, you know, it's unfortunately got an injury. We're not sure how long he could be out for. It might be this week, might be next that we're looking at him returning. But saying that you hope he's back to me shows a little bit of a lack in confidence in a keeper that has come in and done an admirable job and kept a clean sheet in the second half in a game that, you know, may have saved Ollie's skin and his bacon in this situation, right? It just, everything I see him doing, everything that I see him doing from a interview standpoint, from a coaching and tactical standpoint, to me, smacks of a manager that is not good enough for Manchester United. You talk about, you look at the league table right now, and you think about like mm. it's such an open season right now. Uh. Nobody is talking about United m mounting a challenge for the for the Premier League right now, and they're not doing that because Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is there. I. 
I, all right, so uh, you, you threw a lot at me there. I agree that Laguna Solskjaer is not the one who's going to, you know, should be credited with whatever success Man United has this season unless he kind of undergoes this managerial and tactical renaissance. But I, I don't think there's an issue with him saying that he hopes De Gea will be back for Wednesday. He's your starting keeper. As I, Adam, like as much as you love Dean Henderson and as much as you think that he should get time, David De Gea is the number one keeper at Manchester United. So to say that you hope that he's healthy for Wednesday's match, there's no issue with that. There would be an issue if he went out and said, you know, we need De Gea to be healthy because there's, you know, we can't play as a team without him. Something along those lines. That would be a bit more disrespectful to Dean Henderson. But just by saying that you hope your number one keeper's back for a Champions League fixture, there's not an issue with that. Come on. Listen, I, I hope that he handled it better behind this than he did the press, is, is all I'll say on that. I just think that that wouldn't have been the way that I would have man-managed in a situation like that. And I just, again, I think that's part of the fact that he's not a top-class manager in my eyes, right? Just, right. I don't, I don't see it. I, yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. I think I think the uh, you know the the statement that he is not on that upper echelon of managers is a fair one, and that serves as a perfect transition, Adam, to uh, the second match on Sunday, which really was the marquee matchup of uh, a Sunday on paper: Spurs and Chelsea vying for uh, what could be first place shifting in the Premier League, um, and. Jose Mourinho going into this match, a lot of people asking the question, has he kind of changed his his managerial style, letting Spurs play this free-form attacking, um, having you know players uh, like Son, Kane, Lo Celso, Bergwijn, just dumping, dumping forward. But Mourinho, going back to the basics on this one, a Mourinho masterclass, I would describe this match as, Adam. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, right? Because Spurs haven't been an ultra-defensive unit this season. They've put six past Manchester United, for God's sake. It's been, it's been great to watch them play that sort of offensive football. But what I will say about Spurs this season is Mourinho is very comfortable parking the bus. He's doing it when he needs to, right? This was a game where I felt like he needed to because if he tried to go toe-to-toe with Chelsea, he probably got the best forward line in the Premier League. I think that's, that's fair to say. Werner is starting to hit form. Havertz is is a great player. Um, we've seen Ziyech come in as well, and he's been really impressive so far. I think if you go mm-hmm. blow for blow against an offense like that, even though he's past Man United, you may well come off on the wrong end of it. So he decided that he would keep it tight. He decided that he would be a more defensive, organized unit. Um, and guess who started at center back for Spurs? Who started at center back for Spurs, Zach? Joe Rodon. Joe Rodon. I was waiting. I would never take that years out of your mouth. <laughs> It was beautiful. Uh, he, had, he had a cracking game. So he had one little error near the end um, where he was let off by Giroud, but overall looked super solid the whole game. Um, Alderweireld with a minor injury kept him out of that game, but just looked great. And, and another thing I would say is, for me, so far, signing of the season across the entire league, Hoiberg has been Whatever. the midfield okay. general for Spurs, has been unbelievable and had Conte in his pocket the whole game. Hoiberg is the quintessential Jose Mourinho player. Ulti- like truly just all he wants to do is sit in front of the defense. He has no interest going forward. He gets into every tackle. He's extremely aggressive on the ball. He is essentially what 
you know, and Golo Conte has made his career out of ironically is, is being that one who is scrappy, who is always going to play the ball. I, I'd say where Hoiberg is, has elevated his play is his passing ability this season. And that's why he is the perfect fit, not just for Mourinho, but for this Spurs team, his ability to not only win the ball back, but then start that counterattack. Because as we said, with, with Kane, Son, and Bergwijn currently as the three who started in this one, you have just an immense amount of pace. You have an immense amount of finishing ability. And although there weren't any goals this season, I, as you mentioned, Hoiberg's talent has really just skyrocketed and his value from his time at, you know, at Southampton, he, he was he was a very solid player, but I, I don't think anybody could have really expected him to have this large of an impact as he has uh, just 10 matches into the season for Spurs. Yeah, he's been he's been absolutely fantastic. And um, to, to wrap on Spurs there um, right now, they've their last two games. They beat Manchester City 2-0. They drew 0-0 at Chelsea. And then their next four games, they play Arsenal, Liverpool, and Leicester are three of those teams that they play. And those all happen prior to Christmas. If Spurs, who are currently in first place in the league, are near the top two, three teams at the end of, by Christmas, after having played those games, they've got to be title contenders, don't they? I, I, I've thought they were title contenders since about the third or fourth week of the season. I, I think that they really have found this perfect balance. Uh, their signings over the last two summers have been pretty much perfect. Bergwijn and Dombele is now back in favor with uh, with Mourinho after that early dust-up between the two, and he is playing like a, a man possessed at the moment. I, I mean, like nothing has really gone wrong for Spurs so far. I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of if they can keep it up, and that's kind of always what it is for Spurs, uh, especially with this season being so tight. There's not a, a runaway favorite so far, but Oh, yeah, I, I think a, a bet on Spurs to win the title is a, a fairly smart bet at the moment. Yeah, great, great bet. And then I don't know if you, your dad will know this, but you might not. But you've heard this with Spurs fans, the year of the one. You ever heard of this? No. The, the year of the one, historically Spurs have won trophies in years beginning or ending in one. So obviously going into 2021, year of the one is present so i wouldn't be shocked even if they don't win the the league that spurs maybe win a cup or win a trophy this season Mourinho loves to do that history repeats itself my friend so yeah. um spurs on the up right now we'll we'll keep it in north london for a team very much so spiraling in the opposite direction uh, arsenal falling victim to a 2-1 defeat against wolves in this one it's now three games without a victory for arsenal only one win in their last Five matches. They're down to 14th below Newcastle in the table, Adam. They've scored less goals than Newcastle as well. You know, who would have thought that this would happen the day that we all heard that uh, Pierre Mourakabumiang would be staying uh, in North London? But Arsenal is just so out of sorts at the moment. Someone needs to wake up Pierre Mourakabumiang. That that guy is going through a crazy bad run of form right now, um, especially after getting paid in the summer. He needs to start saving Arteta's job in, in very, very quick fashion. 
Yeah, I mean, credit, though, does go to Wolves as well, right? Uh, Wolves coming out firing in this one. It was another Nuno tactical piece of genius, it seemed. Uh, Dama Traore being the one to set up the first goal, just using that pace and strength to blow by Kieran Tierney on the right wing, floating in a very beautiful cross. And after uh, a, uh, I think it was a Daniel Pedence header that went off the crossbar, Pedro Neto swinging around, putting it in for a 28th-minute opener. Um, now, Spurs... Leveling it up just two minutes later on a header by Gabrielle, or a really thumping header it was by the Arsenal defender. But um, again, as we've seen time and time again from Arsenal this season, uh, unable to hold a lead, a, a draw, really any sort of consistency in the match. Daniel Pedence getting a goal in the 42nd minute to, to put Wolves up 2-1. And, and that's the way it ended. No goals in that second half. And what what is it? What is it right now that we're seeing that we're seeing out of Arsenal, but also what is it we're seeing out of Wolves to to catapult them to as to as high as seventh in the table? Well, let's let's talk about Arsenal first. I've been trying to pinpoint really what's going on there, and I'm really struggling to figure it out. I think it literally is just the form of Aubameyang is directly tied to the fortune of that team. Without him in it, they're a bang average offense. Um, they don't have a lot of great attacking flair. And when he's not firing on all cylinders, they just don't look great. Um, that, that for me is it. It's as simple as that because defensively, they're much improved. Gabrielle actually has chipped in with two goals this season um, as a defender. And I think they've looked a lot more solid at the back with him around. He's a very astute signing for them. So they figured out that piece. And then on the flip side of it now, they just don't know what they're doing offensively. I think it's going to take one going in off his backside a la Joe Linton, and then all of a sudden everything will be right with the world again. Um, that, that's what I think personally. And and Wolves, where where do you where do you see Wolves striving right now? It seems as though losing Diogo Jota, despite how good he's been at Liverpool, hasn't really set back the, the Portuguese side. Listen, Nuno Espirito Santo has Portuguese youngsters hiding behind the back of his couch. Like he can call upon any one of them at any given moment to come into Wolves and be the next great thing, right? So he doesn't need to worry about that. They've got plenty of strength and depth there. They brought on our boy Fabio um, after Jimenez went off. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here. Um, but they brought on our boy Fabio. He had a great game. Pedro Neto scored the opener, as you mentioned. He's a player that I'm tipping to be up there, you know, among the next Portugal greats. Really, really big fan of his. And they're just a solid team with, with strength and reserve. And, and if we'll go into it now, we'll touch on it now. If Raul Jimenez, who fractured his skull in that game, is going to be out for a considerable amount of time, I'm actually not that worried. I feel like they just have the talent, and not necessarily out-and-out -out striker talent, but they just have so many goal-scoring wingers and midfielders that could like do a sh pull a shift in there until he's back. Yeah, it, it really does seem to be a team that is playing largely for the manager in, in the sense of the faith that he's putting into his players is being very much so reciprocated on the pitch. And, and both of the Wolves' goals in this match coming from just smart and energetic play in the box, that willingness to be the first one to the ball. Uh, and that's something that you, you almost can't teach. You you have that team and you have the, you know, the Wolves has this overwhelming chemistry that largely comes from, you know, a vast, a, a large percentage of them being countrymen, but there is a, a sense of belief there. Now, it is important to touch upon what did happen between Raul Jimenez and David Luiz in the 15th minute, the two players going up for a header, uh, clashing skulls and both going down into a heap. Now, 
the interesting thing here, and maybe some would say the worrying thing, is actually both players stayed in the match for uh, a series of minutes. David Luiz stayed in until halftime, whereas Raul Jimenez stayed for about a minute or two before being subbed off. Um, but Jimenez, as you mentioned, found out to actually have suffered a fractured skull in that incident. So it's really, really scary stuff. Now, he has since undergone a successful operation in London. There isn't really a timetable that's being set out to kind of estimate how long he'll be out. Obviously, that's a uh, an injury that can be pretty severe, but it does beg the question that, that has been asked before of do rules need to be changed for injuries in the Premier League and how they're associated with substitutions? So as we both know, you know, Traditionally, it doesn't matter if a player is injured. You have three substitutions. That's it. You you have to kind of play with that as you will. But a lot of calls are now being made specifically for head injuries to add an additional substitution. Now, there was an article in The Guardian today covering this kind of uptick in, in calls for this to be changed. And the quote from the article here, the incident has led to renewed calls for extra substitutions to be introduced for head injuries and Lucas Brood, the chief executive of the Lawmaking International Football Association Board, told The Guardian it would be the lead item on the agenda when IFAB met on December the 16th. Brood also said he hoped that if protocols were approved, they would, quote, be trialed as soon as possible. So, Adam, we're looking at a potential development where even as soon as maybe even going into the new year, an additional substitution could be added in the case of a head injury occurring during a match. What are your thoughts on this whole development? I think it's a no-brainer. I mean, why why wouldn't you do that? I think, honestly, the Premier League is way, way behind on concussion protocols to really the rest of sport. Um, you look at, there, there's many things that the NFL, National Football League in America, doesn't do well. I think they actually do concussion protocols very well. They don't let people come back into the game. They immediately pull them. They're able to, to test and kind of go through these immediate reactionary tests. David Luiz played on the rest of that half after a 10-minute stoppage about 10, 15 minutes into the game. He played the rest of the half with a head, basically like a dressing around his head, blood you could see seeping through the bandage into that. And he played until halftime, and then he got pulled for Rob Holding at halftime. What, what are we doing? What are we doing? It's absolutely ridiculous. You're telling me that guy doesn't have a concussion. The other guy has a fractured skull. Like, they clashed heads. Sure, one person's going to come off worse than the other person, but to me, it's absolute. So if you can help teams in any way, shape, or form of serious injuries like that, make it for a significant injury. Make it a first half additional. If there's a forced injury-related substitution, the first half, I don't care if it's related to the concussions. Give them an additional substitute if there's a forced injury that requires it in the first half. Make some sort of rules around it. Who cares? Protect the players. I think I think it's absolutely necessary. Spot on there, Adam. It is really this draconian style of thinking to, to say that regardless of injuries, players need to stay on the pitch or players need to only be subbed out if a team has substitutions remaining. I, I agree. You, you see this and. You know, personally, as somebody who has suffered a uh, a traumatic brain injury myself, it's it's a terrifying thing to think that somebody could be still out there with um, 
as severely damaged a, a brain or a skull as we saw on the weekend. So I think this is a rule that should have been implemented decades ago. Hopefully we get it done in the next month. And this is a rule that's implemented not just for the second half of this season, but as a permanent change to the rule book going forward. Yep, I think we need to get with the times. You're absolutely right. So there were two matches now that took place uh, today, the day of our recording on Monday, uh, after the weekend fixtures. Uh, Fulham in the first match, a shock 2-1 victory over Leicester. If we're talking about teams that don't make sense in terms of consistency, I think that Leicester is right up there with Leeds. They're right up there with Everton because... I don't really understand what's going on with that side. You know, they they're now they've now lost their last two matches after a a, a streak of three wins in a row. They're down to fourth in the table. So more so speaking to the, how strong their start was, but Leicester just looked absolutely dogged, absolutely lethargic today. And Fulham, a, a team that seemingly couldn't score to save their life before uh, two matches ago, is now, you know, two wins in four out of the relegation zone. What is going on? I, I don't really have words to describe it. I think you coined a new verb earlier on today that I thought was perfect that described this situation. Remember what that was? Yeah, Leicester is lustering themselves. Exactly. It's you. You can't describe it any other way. You just don't know what Leicester you're going to get from week to week. It, it, it's absolutely crazy. And um, this is Fulham. They're not a good team. They're not a good team. I think Adamola Lookman is actually a decent player. I've been quite impressed with him. He bagged a nice goal in, in that game after a decent through ball. But I, I just, I, I don't have words to describe it right now. Um, they're inconsistent. They, you don't know what you're going to get week to week. I think, do we, do we put this on Brendan Rodgers, I guess? I think it has to be at least somewhat on Brendan Rodgers. I think also they're, you know, they, they do rely on Jamie Vardy quite a bit, and Jamie Vardy not scoring in this one. Their only goal coming from uh, Harvey Barnes in the 87th minute. And despite the fact that Vardy is near the top of the scoring charts, I mean, it, as, as we just talked about with Arsenal, when you're pretty much betting the house on one striker and that striker is either you know on a poor run of form or, or you know kind of beaten matchup wise in a particular match you're pretty much out of luck and and that's what we're seeing out of Leicester right now but again credit does need to go to Fulham that this was a big big victory for them uh, after starting uh, the season without any victories in their first six matches they now have six points out of their last 12 which for a team that will be fighting relegation all season, uh, you, you have to take that there. Yeah, I mean, listen, Zach, Vardy is 36 years old. Guy's in the twilight of his career. He's retired from international football. He should be able to play week after week in the fitness level, with the fitness level that he has. But he's not. He's not the solution in the long term. Like Vardy should be being phased out here, not being relied upon so heavily. So. We talked about Man City earlier. There's another team that needs to be heavily involved in the transfer in January in the, from a striker standpoint. Um, I think Leicester's in exactly the same boat. Mm-hmm. Vardy at 33 years old, so not not quite at his rounding the, the 40 mark uh, of 36. Oh, is that right? I thought I read 36 earlier. Oh, that's my bad. But still, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah, Milner, Milner is a player who's 36 years old, so that, that uh, might have been one that you were thinking of there. But nonetheless, no, I agree with you. Uh, he 
you know, Jamie Vardy is not somebody who is going to kind of lead the lines day in and day out. Uh, Milner is 34 years old. All right, we're both messing up here today, Adam. But uh, <laughs> the, the, point remains, the point remains that – He's still um, old for a Premier League footballer and a striker that they're relying on so heavily. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, again, Fulham, big win. Leicester, big opportunity missed here to to stay near atop the table. They actually would have uh, been back in the tie for, for first uh, if they got that victory today. And then the final match in the afternoon, West Ham getting a, a very, very solid 2-1 victory against Villa. Um, it, they are now up to fifth. I don't think anybody really saw this coming. I, again, the, the table's been so tight this year that any – three-point win with a series of other results will catapult the team. But, I mean, West Ham really, really starting to gel under David Moyes. Uh, I, I, I got to say, Adam, I like what I see with the Hammers, and I hate to say that, but I really, really like watching them play at the moment. You know who's a really underappreciated player? is Jared Bowen. I, feel I was like going to say guy. Jared Bowen is mm -hmm. off to a yeah. great start this season. One of the signings of the summer, I would say. Yeah, well, he was a January. Well, I don't know if you remember that. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What, yep. what the signings of the, the last season. Yeah, exactly. And he came in and he did, you know, came in from Hull City. And he was a player that Newcastle were linked with for, for successive transfer windows. And we didn't pull the trigger because there's a large transfer fee involved in signing. He's really coming good now. He's pacey to the box well, gets into the right situations. Great goal again today. A little flipped on header. Right, right when the teams were coming out for the second half, it was before they even hit 46 minutes. It was, it was pretty much straight from the kickoff. And, you know, he's right place, right time, always putting a lot of patience in. Very, very impressive players to me. But you said, you said it well, right? Well, credits do three wins in a row now. David Moyes gets his, a lot of critics. And I told, I told you again at the, in the offseason, they should have backed him a lot more in the summer transfer window than I feel like they actually did. But he's he's been doing a really good job regardless. Mm -hmm. So West Ham, again, up to fifth. They're now at 17 points, only uh, four points off the league leaders, Tottenham and Liverpool, who are tied on 21. So a, a really great weekend of football that we saw there. Adam, we'll go over the top scorers after match week 10. Uh with 10 goals, Dominic Calvert-Lewin still leading those lines despite not scoring on the weekend. Hyung Min Son on nine goals right behind him, again, despite not scoring on the weekend. And then Mo Salah got a goal to go up to tie with Jamie Vardy uh, for that third place in the top scorers chart at eight. So 10 goals, nine goals, eight goals. It's, it's been very exciting and a number of names that you might not have uh, predicted to see up there at season start. Mo Salah did not get a goal, unfortunately, my friend. It was Diogo Jota who scored. He had a disallowed goal in that game. So none of the none of the That's four true. top strikers in the league got any goals this weekend. It was a bad series of two and a half minutes for you. <laughs> we just it's, we were just it's, it's late what can, on a Monday night. What can we say? <laughs> um, great. So so without any further ado, we'll take our last commercial break here, and then we will go over a couple of things. Uh, involving our beloved Newcastle United as well as the Premier League as a whole that have transpired over the last day or so um, before jumping into our final cornerstone sections of the day. So, all right, uh, we'll be back in just a moment.
All right, so we're back from our commercial break now. Adam, uh, so I, there's more news to, to be had regarding COVID, and this kind of expands larger to the Premier League as a whole. Adam, um, what have you read in the last couple of days about the potential for fans to be returning to some specific games uh, as soon as next week or the week after? So uh, initially we had hoped that this would happen for the new season, but it sounds like we have made some some headway on that now. So essentially there are three tiers that we can have that we, in terms of capacity and fans allowed in stadiums during the pandemic. The first tier allows up to 4,000 fans outdoors or 2,000 fans indoors. The second tier, 2,000 fans outdoors and 1,000 fans indoors. Um, and then tier three is no fans allowed, period. Uh, there are no teams across all of England that are allowing any tier one team, so 4,000 fans allowed in their stadiums. However, there are several teams that have been allowed to do so uh, in, in, in the tier two bracket. Um, those include all of the London teams, the two Liverpool teams in Liverpool and Everton, and then Brighton and Hove Albion. They are under those tier two restrictions, meaning that fans can actually return up to 2,000 strong this weekend. Of course, it would be home fans only, um, but they could be in the stadium supporting their teams. The tier three teams, which do include Newcastle, both the Manchester teams, all the Birmingham-based teams, Leeds and Wolverhampton in the Northwest, those will unfortunately not be allowed any teams or any fans in the stadium to support the team. So it's very interesting, as, as with anything with COVID, sometimes you need a, a degree in COVID to be able to follow along with the, with the rules here. Um, but as of right now, there are several teams that as of this weekend will be allowed to have fans return. I think West Ham um, are the first game on this Saturday that will allow that to happen. So great to see fans back in the stadium, um, but but again, a little disparity in which teams are allowed to do so. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the complaints can come out that that Newcastle, of course, it's Newcastle that, that won't have fans allowed back. But as we're now seeing, as we just mentioned, uh, Newcastle might be subject to, to some sort of COVID issues. So seemingly does make sense. Um, I, I, I mean, you're playing a tricky game, right, when you allow fans back in stadiums, especially because there have been reports that have come out that uh, is claiming that the Premier League is not going to require that uh, fans wear masks while in the stadium, which seems remarkably counterintuitive to me personally, although I'm not an epidemiologist, so what do I know? Uh, now, we will see how this will kind of develop, especially as the winter um, progresses and a lot of experts think cases are going to spike once again. Will they then remove fans from the stadium? Or are they just going to do it for, you know, a trial? Who knows? But we we will see. And potentially, you know, we could hear some some echoing shouts of, of cheers in stadiums sometime soon. Yep. I think to finish on a light note here, uh, one of my favorite things that I saw this past week uh, was the fact that Sunderland are a tier three team in terms of their ranking system from a COVID standpoint. And somebody made a smart ass comment saying that that they're used to that. They've been a tier three team for three seasons now. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Maybe we might get a derby between Newcastle and Sunderland now that we're both considered tier three. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's what we like to see. Good banter as always. So we'll, we'll have to see how that develops uh, as, as the days progress. All right, Adam. So uh, that's kind of our recap of what's going on in the Premier League. Do you want to take it on to uh, armchair pundits before we go to 10 and 90 and wrap this up? 
Yes, let's do it. Um, do you mind if I start on Armchair Pundits this week? Of course, go for it. All right, I'm going to go straight into this one because I think it's a fairly obvious one, but I want to back it up with some statistics because I think they're always interesting. Uh, Chris Wilder will be sacked by Sheffield United before Christmas. All right, this is something we talked about earlier. All right, mm-hmm. go for it. Yep, so after losing to West Brom, Sheffield United face Leicester, Southampton, and Man U in their next three games. That takes them through the 17th of December. They're, as we mentioned, the only winless team now in the Premier League with one point from their opening 10 games. They've scored only four goals in 10 games this season. That's the joint lowest in the Premier League with Burnley. Took a look back at last season. It took Sheffield United three games to score four their first four goals last season. And during that run, they picked up four points, including a 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge to open the season. And in their first 10 games last season, Sheffield United conceded eight goals. They've conceded 16 so far. They've doubled their amount of goals conceded in their first 10 games this season. This is a team in free fall right now. And ultimately, the buck stops with the manager, Chris Wilder, gone by Christmas. Unfortunately, I agree with every word you said. One point from from ten games is never never enough, and it honestly, should be reason for sacking a manager. Unfortunately, so uh, this is Wilder. Yep, I was gonna say this is the this is the Sheffield United we thought we would see last season. Mm-hmm. This is the Sheffield United Dean Henderson prevented us from seeing last season. Don't, <laughs> don't put it all on the goalkeeper's shoulders. You know, I'm a fan. It's not fair. All. Uh, no, I'm saying he he's the only reason we didn't see this last season. So that is the biggest compliment you could possibly give him. <laughs> I'm talking about my beloved ex-Bournemouth goalkeeper coming in here and returning to be the uh, true, 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 true. It, it is nice. not his fault. You, you always have to gaslight me like that to give your Bournemouth agenda. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great um, agenda. It is a good agenda. Okay, Adam, this one's a this one is one of the few Newcastle specific uh, armchair pundits I think I've ever given. But my prediction here is with the COVID outbreak that we just spoke about, Newcastle 18-year-old starlet Elliot Anderson will play and make his first team debut for Newcastle on Friday against Aston Villa. Hmm. Yep, I like that. I'm excited to see him. So, so Elliot Anderson, uh, if people don't know, and I, I know that if anybody who listens to CHN radio, they have heard Greg go into much detail about uh, this young player, 18 years old, a North Shields born player through the Newcastle Academy has been absolutely tearing it up for the under 23 side this year. He has four goals and one assist in five matches. He made the bench for Newcastle against Crystal Palace last week. Didn't make an appearance, didn't come off the bench, so still has not made his debut, but obviously is one that a lot of eyes are being cast upon. And really, the argument for this is, who knows who's going to be hit by this COVID bug? You'd have to assume that it's going to be a thin squad and that Steve Bruce is going to have to dip into his resources here. I not only see Elliot Anderson, again, being in the uh, the match day lineup, I don't think he'll start unless all of our strikers have COVID, but I do think that he will at least come off the bench and get an appearance, whether it be for one minute or for 20 minutes in this match. Really, really excited to see the 18-year-old play. Yep, I think it's a great shout. Unused sub in the last game against Palace. So I could certainly see it happening, especially if we're going to have some COVID-related absences from the team. Yeah, that would be that that would be some silver lining if you know if that does that does transpire. Um all right, Adam, let's let's wrap it up. Some 10 and 90. Let's hit him with it and we will call it a night. 
All right, sounds good. Do you want to go first or second? I'll get you the option here. Uh, you can go first. Okay, sounds good. Okay, first question. Um, is, oh, sorry, first the topic I should say is EPL hat tricks. And the first question is, which current Premier League player, easy one to start, holds the EPL record for hat tricks with a total of 12? Current player who is active in the Premier League? Yes. 12 hat tricks? It must be Sergio Aguero. It is absolutely Sergio Aguero. Well done, sir. Yep. Thank so you. 12 hat tricks. Um, I think two of those have come against Newcastle. So there you yeah, go. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of Newcastle, question number two. <laughs> Who are the last three Newcastle players to score Premier League hat tricks? There are three Newcastle players who have scored Premier League hat tricks. Oh, absolutely. There's more than three. I think there's five, five total. Um, um, the, okay. The last I, I, three. Uh, yeah. I'll give you a clue. No, I, I happened since 2011 sorry, was the was the third Ooh. longest ago. So they've all happened. Interesting. In the last 10 years. Okay. Well, I know Georgino Wijnaldum. Yep. Against Norwich in 2015 is correct. Is that the most recent? No, the most recent was actually last year. Really? Premier League hat trick. Who scored a hat trick last year? Um. St. Maximin? No. It was very early last year, so it wasn't last season. The season before. Oh. Okay. Um, I'm going to laugh my ass off if you don't get this one. You'll, you'll throw yourself out the window. If you that's that's fair. Uh, who's going to Hattrick? Why am I having so much trouble with this? It was against Southampton this is the late 2018-2019 season after the turn of the year. This is too... My, my brain is too fried from today. Um, was it... Was it Hosselu? I, I don't know. Why am I having so much trouble with this? You have a tattoo of his name on the back, on your back itself. He's... Ex Newcastle now currently plays for your beloved Leicester City. Uh, I was Iosi, of course. I, I don't know how I <laughs> forgot that. Oh yeah, that was that was that was one of the worst hat tricks I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it still happened. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that you did not get Iosi Perez, the forgotten man at Leicester and the forgotten man in Zach's mind. Oh yeah, it was the third Dembaba. It was Dembaba against yeah. Stoke in 2011. There you go. Okay. Yep, great great player. So uh, okay. Third question, has the same team ever had two or more players register a hat trick in the same Premier League game? So not two teams playing against each other and each team has a hat trick score. You're talking about teams that have scored at least six goals in a game and there have been multiple hat tricks for that Whoa. same team in a single game. Has that occurred before? I mean, the answer has to be yes or you wouldn't be asking me this question. <laughs> the, answer, the answer is yes, but I'd like to know if you know who did it? Is it Newcastle? It's not Newcastle. I wish no. it was. Is it Manchester United? Not. Maybe one okay. more guess. I, I don't know who it is now. I was gonna guess I was gonna guess Rooney and Ronaldo, but um no, I'm out of guesses. Far more recently than that. Um I went back to the well here. It's Leicester City 
Um, last season, their 9-0 win at Southampton. Again against um, Southampton, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jamie Vardy scored a hat-trick, and your boy Jose Perez also scored a hat-trick in that game. God, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've brought shame upon the Jose Perez fandom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number four. Of these three players, past and present, who has scored the most Premier League hat-tricks? Cristiano Ronaldo, Andy Carroll, Gareth Bale. Oh. Bale. Bale? It can't time. be Andy. It can't be. It can't be Andy Carroll. It's, <laughs> Andy. it's Andy has, Carroll. Wait, has he scored one and the other two have never scored one? No. Um, Andy Carroll has scored a hat trick for West Ham and a hat trick for Newcastle when they first came back up from the championship before he signed for Liverpool. Um, and Ronaldo and Bale have both scored only one apiece. That's that's incredible, isn't it? That... I just saw two two Premier League hat tricks for Andy Carroll, and then I started scouring the list of players that have scored less than two, and came up with like the world's former most expensive player and possibly the greatest player of all time, Ronaldo. So that's, that's quite remarkable. a good stat. Oh, mm-hmm. Man, yeah, that is a great stat. All right, uh, what is the record for Premier League hat tricks in a single season? I'll give you a clue. It happened as recently as 2011, 2012. You know that Demba Ba got one in that season. Mm-hmm. What's the record for number of hat tricks in a season? I'll give you either way. You give me how many? Two either way. The number can't be that high. Uh, is it? I'll go with. I'll go with four. Four Premier League hat tricks in a. Now you're you're miles off. Um, so here's the reason I asked the question. We've had seven so far this season. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa. Do you mean by a single player or by the collective no, league? I mean I mean collect collectively. Oh, so, oh, oh, oh. I, I haven't I haven't told you the number yet, so I'll give you another shot if you miss misunderstood the question. But in, okay. in over the course of a season, overall number of hat tricks. I did misinterpret that. Okay, uh, let's go with eighteen. It's 19, so yeah, almost almost spot on there. So that that's the that's the stat I was trying to get at here. As we we're already on course, 10 games in, with seven so far, could well be that we surpass that record of 19. Uh, obviously, in this COVID world, no fans in there, a little bit less pressure. We've talked about that. Players are scoring more freely, and it's been seven different players with hat tricks so far this season as well. Some mm. unlikely lads like Ollie Watkins, Patrick Bamford have scored hat tricks as well. So. I think it's a it's a goal scorer's dream right now. I like that. I like that. Yep. Cool. And uh, Cal- Callum Wilson has two in his career, both for Bournemouth. So hopefully we see huh. another one this season for Newcastle. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. All right. Uh, came out with lots of EPL hat trick stats for you there, but I'm going to round it out as I always do with a nice Welsh word for you. Um, pronounce this one for me, Zach. I will go ahead and spell it out for you. C H W was a great way to start a word. C H W A R A. E O N. C H W A R A O N. E O N. E O N. Charon. It's a good guess. It's the uh, the classic sound at the beginning of it. Chwarayon. Oh. Sounds like, a, sounds like a, the name of a, a lady of the lake. It does, like Gwendolyn, yes. Yeah, um, like Gwendolyn. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. nice. You yeah. picked up on that really nicely. <laughs> I did. I, I wouldn't be watched if I didn't know that. Huarayan means, Zach? 
I don't know, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it means sports. Uh, wow, that's a very yeah. long word to say sports. There you go. Oh, okay. That's your lot. That's your lot, sir. That was a fun one. That was a fun one. Okay, uh, 10 and 90 this week uh, is going to be kind of a rapid-fire one. Uh, we're going to go down the Premier League uh, managerial list, and I'm going to name you a Premier League manager, and you're going to immediately tell me what animal you think they would be if they were born again <laughs> as an animal in a different life. Wow. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Not going to do all of the managers, obviously, because that wouldn't be 10 and 90, which we always abide by the rules of 10 and 90. Uh, um, okay, uh, we'll start with um, an easy one. Uh, Nuno Espirito Santo. A bear. Okay, good. Um, David Moyes. Um, an otter. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, Roy Hodgson. Oh god, this one's hard. A pigeon. Ooh, okay, a pigeon. I like that. Um, <laughs> Sean Dyche. Sean Dyche. Wait, I want to use him as a bear. Actually, uh, no. Let's go with a a coyote. Mm, I like that a lot. Um, okay, I'll give you two marks. I don't know how many I've asked. Uh, let's go with Carlo Ancelotti. Carlo Ancelotti, a sloth. Oh, I, yeah, that's great. Um, okay, two more. Uh, Josie Mourinho. I'm just having fun with this now. Um, a horse, an elegant, well maintained horse. Nice. Okay, and last one here. Um, we'll go with Brendan Rogers. No Steve Bruce in there? No, no, okay. Brendan Rogers, <laughs> that's not an animal. Um, oh, shit, I had a really good one for Steve Bruce as well. Never mind. Um, Brendan Rogers, let's go with a dog. He's very loyal to his team. There you go. I like that. That was yep. fun. I, I've realized I, I could go every Premier League manager. I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, but that was that was fun. That was a good one. Just so you know, Steve Bruce was going to be a walrus. Yes. I mean, there's he's a walrus eating a cabbage. Goo 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 I play five at the back. Um, <laughs> all right, Adam. Well, uh, that was a, a good. That was a good fifty-six episode. Um, any match in particular you're looking forward to on the weekend? Yeah, there's a there's a few actually this weekend. I think we're gonna, we're gonna have some good fixtures. Um, more on Sunday than Saturday, I would say. The Saturday fixture I'm looking forward to is Chelsea versus Leeds because Christ knows which version of Leeds we're gonna get. It's always entertaining though. And then on Sunday, um, we've got the North London Derby, Spurs against Arsenal. And then we've got the Mighty Wolves visiting the decimated with injuries Liverpool. So that should be a, an interesting one with Jota obviously playing um, at home for Liverpool against his old team. I like that. Nice. Yeah, I would say the one I'd add there, West Ham, Man United. I'd love to see West Ham go for the jugular in this one. So, um, yeah. We'll with see fans in the stadium, Zach, tier two. Yeah. That's true. Tier two, baby. Tier two. One day we'll be there. Um, all right, Adam. Well, as always, uh, a great time chatting. I uh, hope you folks have enjoyed listening to our Premier League rants, and we will be back in a couple weeks' time to do it all over again. Until next time. Fatigue. Fatigue.